Bob Murphy Show, episode 215. you gonna do get ready for another episode of the bob murphy show the podcast promoting free markets free minds and grateful souls it's your source for commentary and interviews conducted by a christian and economist now here's your host bob murphy Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Bob Murphy Show. In this one, I'm going to be talking with Joe Salerno, who's a senior fellow with the Mises Institute. We've had him on previous episodes. I'll also link to my earlier discussion with him where Joe sort of gives his origin story as how did he become an Austrian economist, a libertarian hero. But for what we're talking about in this episode, the issue is Paul Krugman's recent New York Times column titled A Very Austrian Pandemic. So let me just summarize for you good folks what Krugman's column was about, because that's the jumping off point for this discussion I'm going to have with Joe. So Krugman, first of all, starts out by taking a swipe at the Austrian theory of the business cycle, saying it never made any sense. According to the Austrians, during the boom, workers and other resources, because of optimism, get shifted out of consumption goods and into investment goods. And then for some reason, things flip back and that's a bust when the workers have to go from the investment goods sectors back to the consumer goods sectors. And so right off the bat, Krugman says, there's this asymmetry that makes no sense. Why is the boom period associated with prosperity when workers are going from retail over to higher order investment goods? Why is that considered a period of prosperity and it feels like good times? But then when the workers move back, all of a sudden that's supposed to be a depression or a recession. Why is that? So Krugman thinks that's a problem for the Austrian account. And then he says another problem is that clearly wasn't what was happening during the Great Depression or during the Great Recession, for that matter, following the 2008 financial crisis. And so that's another strike against the Austrians. They were just misdiagnosing what the problem was. But fast forwarding to today, Krugman says, hey, at the recent Jackson Hole Monetary Conference that the Fed hosts every year, there was a paper presented that said during the 2020 pandemic, what happened was workers and other resources shifted from retail outlets because of coronavirus to things that you could order on Amazon, for example. And so Krugman said, for example, I stopped going to my gym because it was closed. And instead I ordered a stationary bike that got delivered to my house. And so he, Krugman's saying that pattern holds up generally. And so look at the Austrians actually are relevant now during the pandemic because it involves this huge shift in production from one sector to the other. And lo and behold, Krugman says, what these authors concluded in their mainstream formal model was that you need expansionary monetary policy to accommodate that shift of workers and other resources from one sector to another if you don't want to get high unemployment. And so Krugman says, ha-ha, look at this. The one time when the Austrians are relevant, they're still wrong, because the Austrians famously are against loose money. All right, so that's what Krugman's column was about. Now, I wrote a response at Mises.org. I'll link to, again, bobmurphyshow.com slash 215. And there's a sort of a surprise at the end that a lot of people like, so I won't spoil that, but I encourage you to go read that to see my response to Krugman. But Joe Salerno mentioned when he knew I was working on this response that he had a paper in the QJAE 
responding to critics of the Austrian business cycle theory. So I thought this would be a good time for me to bring Joe on to talk not just about Krugman, but about the Austrian business cycle theory more generally and how a lot of economists, even friendly ones like Brian Kaplan and Tyler Cowen, misconstrue what the theory actually says. So without further ado, here's my discussion with Joe Salerno. Well, Joe, welcome back to The Bob Murphy Show. I'm happy to be here, Bob. Thank you for inviting me. Sure thing. So I have already explained the context of, you know, Krugerman's piece and, you know, a little bit of your article so we can dive right into this for the folks at home. So I think, why don't I ask you this? When you read Krugman's latest piece, what was your initial reaction? Were you like, here we go again? Yeah, um, Krugman, it was a gratuitous swipe at the Austrian theory, just as his original article was in 1998, where he never addressed it in, in, in a scholarly context you know, at a conference paper or, or in, a, in a journal. So, uh, yeah, I thought, well, you know, it's just, why? Well, I don't understand the rationale behind it. I mean, the Austrian theory wasn't getting a lot of play mm-hmm. recently. And then for him to bring it up again means that he's sort of got an obsession or a mania. So I'm glad that he brought it up in a way. I mean, you yourself have, have commented on it and hopefully others will. Mm-hmm. So I guess, why don't we maybe deal with the specific news hook, you know, and then we'll, we'll broaden it to more generally the critiques of the ABCT. So in this latest thing, the reason Krugman said, oh, the reason I brought it up is that this latest paper at the Jackson Hole Conference where they were talking about yeah. the pandemic and how there was a sectoral shift, like a lot of the demand shifted from, you know, retail and, and you know, to things where people could just buy it off Amazon and whatnot. And so, hey, Krugman says, this is finally the first time in history when the Austrians are relevant. But guess what? Even here, they're wrong. Even when the, the conditions of their theory apply, namely that there's a big shift from you know one type of sector to another, yeah. then still we need to have expansionary monetary policy in order to prevent a big spike in unemployment. So do you, I don't mean to put you on the spot. I don't know if you had a chance to look at that other actual paper. I just kind of skimmed it myself. But how do you feel about that claim to say just in general, if there is this like, whether it's the pandemic or just more generally, if there's a big shift in demand, do we need expansionary monetary policy to prevent a big spike in unemployment? Well, first of all, I, I want to challenge the very premise of that because there was not a sh- uh, an autonomous sectoral shift. There wasn't a shift in demand from one sector to another. It was a supply side shock, right? I mean, the government locked down Certain you know workers um, were were you know had to shelter in place and, and and businesses were locked down. So what happened was that it's what Mises calls restrictionism, which always lowers the productivity of labor, always causes unemployment. It was more like um, imposing mon- um, a monopoly like the NRA during the New Deal on the economy, or um, imposing a tariff. All of those things are forms of restrictionism. So any shift in demand that occurred occurred as a result of, on the supply side, certain opportunities being closed off both to workers and consumers. So that has absolutely nothing to do with the Austrian theory of the business cycle. Right. It deals with a monetary phenomenon, not, not with, with government interventions that disrupt and cause problems on the supply side. So, so that, that's my initial response mm-hmm. to that. Right. Yeah. Good point. That even when Krugman thinks he's being fair and trying to give us a fair shake, you know, oh, well, here's a case where you're kidding that no, actually, even there, the conditions don't apply as to what the Austrians are talking about. So that's interesting. Okay. So now within, you know, Krugman's critique, again, he he goes back to the earlier piece he did. Yes. And so just for the folks at home, again, to reiterate, 
the claim is, hey, the Austrian theory says that there was too much in investment and not enough consumer spending during the boom period. And that caused, you know, workers to get shunted from retail and other, you know, consumer goods yes. into capital goods sectors. And then during the bust, what happens is the Austrians claim it shifts back and the workers got to move back to where they started. And so, gee, they're scratching their head that there's an asymmetry. These Austrians are idiots because if it causes a recession, if unemployment spikes when you need to move workers from capital goods over to retail, well, then how come the boom period also doesn't feel like a, a depression? Because you're moving workers from one sector to another there, according to the standard Austrian theory. So how come the one feels like prosperity and the other one feels like a depression? Shouldn't it be symmetrical? So what do you say to that? Well, um, first of all, they seem like they're accepting Say's law there, right? In fact, Krugman, maybe in the original article, said something like, well, total spending um, is equal to total income. So mm -hmm. that if less is spent in one sector, more has to be spent in another sector. But that's exactly Say's law. Right, right. right. That mm -hmm. there's never a deficiency of demand. So I, I found that very interesting and, and – um, you know, Krugman just is is departing from from his own Keynesianism there. All right, but that's that's beside the point. But the the second thing that bothers me, and and, and the crucial point, is that the Austrians do not look on a manipulation of interest rates by a central bank as a, a mere sectoral shift. I mean, as guys causing a sectoral shift in the real economy. That's microeconomics. Not that Austrians don't integrate both of them, but it's focused on a market phenomenon where there's a shift in demand. So in other words, they're, they're leaving out the whole idea that there's some kind of an intervention that falsifies price signals. What they're simply saying is, well, it doesn't really matter. There's a shift in demand from, from one sector to another, from consumers' goods to capital goods, and there should be a, a pretty symmetrical movement you know, if the shift goes back. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I, I find it completely irrelevant and, and orthogonal, as they might say, to, to, to the Austrian theory. Mm -hmm. So one quick way to kind of zoom in on where I think they're missing is to say that they don't talk about capital consumption. And yet certainly in the work of Mises, that's a pretty big feature of, of what he's saying. And the problem with the boom is, is that people feel that they're wealthier. And so it, it's not true that the workers restrict their consumption during the boom in order to free up resources that then get moved to the higher order stages. The, the, the workers are consuming more as well. Right. And so it's you know, sort of like burning the candle at both ends to, you know, maybe take a metaphor that that's, that's not totally yes. <laughs> appropriate in this context. But there are problems, you know, shortcomings with his, with his graphical exposition, of course, because it's, you know, there's, there's some things lost in translation. But I think Roger Garrison and his PowerPoint shows that quite well, where he's showing yeah. during the boom period that investment increases in the higher order stages and consumption increases. And his whole right. point is that's physically unsustainable. That's one of the ways you can see this isn't going to work. And so I, I, do you want to comment on that? Like just the notion of capital consumption that occurs during the boom? Yes. I mean, that's a key. I mean, that there's a capital structure in place. Look, a Keynesian doesn't see the capital structure. He sees the circular flow, right? He sees the firms in place. And, and he sees households on the other side and the firms pay the households who use the income then to buy goods from the firms. And there's a little bit of talk about the, the, the households possibly saving. And if there's net saving, then, you know, there'll be some in the long run, there'll be some additions to the capital stock. But that's not the way that the Austrian theory works. I mean, there's a capital structure that has to be continually maintained over time. And so that 
given that that it's in place, you can actually change consumption quite a bit. In other words, you can consume out of capital. Now, that doesn't mean we eat machines, as, as mm-hmm. you know, Krugman would probably laughingly comment. What it means is that we, we shift workers and other nonspecific factors like electricity, concrete, steel, uh, you know, away from higher orders, away from, you know, thinking mine shafts and, and uh, away from uh, research that would, would lead to, um, uh, uh, you know, new, new projects that would take years to, to put into place. It's rather that we're actually consuming goods that are now consumer goods that have now been increased in quantities because more workers have been shifted, more other things have been shifted to producing instead of coal or, or, or oil or, or steel or electricity, uh, producing, you know, McDonald's hamburgers and, and, um, and Audis. You know, mm-hmm. So, yeah, there, there's capital consumption and, and, and that is completely missed. And also, just this one other point, um, uh, and I think Murray Rothbard makes this very well, it's really in Hobbler, where, where, where Hobbler points out that that the the Austrian theory he doesn't he doesn't he doesn't take in, into account the, the capital structure well, he, he calls it an overinvestment theory mm-hmm. and he was the that's where it became popular when they went back and they looked at that secondary source that this is an overinvestment theory it was it was never called an overinvestment theory ever by Mises by by Hayek or 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 or, or certainly not by Rothbard mm-hmm. right and it's so I know that in your um, QJAE article, you had quoted from Krugman and some other critics, and you had blamed Hobbler for you know bringing in this false interpretation. I think you're giving Krugman too much credit. I bet you he didn't read Hobbler. I bet he read somebody who had read Hobbler and that that's where he got it from. That would be my, my take. Yeah, you, you may be right. If you've seen Krugman, like Paul Samuelson was a good historian of economic thought. Like he was a, a full worth grappling with, whereas Krugman is, I don't know if you've seen his stuff, Joe, like on the Cambridge capital controversy, he, when people were going after Piketty for that stuff, because Piketty has some ridiculous things, like literally right. in Piketty's best-selling book on capital theory, the treatment of the capital Cambridge capital controversy is worse. Like it, it would be better to go to the Wikipedia article. And I'm not saying that like facetiously, wow. like it's, yeah. he really does not get, I can't remember off the top of my head, Joe, how Piketty frames it. But it's yeah, clear he well, has no clue what what the argument was even about. It's it's amazing. But in any event, and, and Krugman tells his readers, tells his, don't, really? don't bother. Re- don't yeah. There, there was this big thing apparently, but nah. There's nothing like he was telling his readers, don't bother looking into this. There was nothing there. It, you know, it was wow. all just a bunch of smoke and mirrors. Yeah. And don't worry, we, you know, situations under control. We theorists are in charge here. So, <laughs> but but so that's why I'm saying I I would be surprised if he'd even read Hobbler. But just to to expand on that a little bit, and so. I think what happens is because I, there was my friend in grad school had asked me one time when I was at NYU, you know, what, what's up with this Austrian theory? And I gave him something to read. I don't remember what it was. And he kind of skimmed it about the business cycle theory. I probably yeah. grabbed something from like the collection that Ebeling, I think, collected about. That's right. Yeah. yeah. And, and my friend, he just, he was looking at it. And this guy was a, you know, sharp mainstream guy who ended up working for the Fed later after we got out of NYU. And he, and he just looked at it. He said, oh, so it's an overinvestment theory. Like for some reason, I, that, they they go to that and it's so it's true if if you had like a simple two good model here's a capital good and a consumption yeah, good yeah. and the government somehow encouraged overinvestment then that would be a probably would be suboptimal right that the the yeah. the trade off like consumption would go down now but consumption would go up in the future and it right. wouldn't be optimal according to the preferences and the discount rates you right. know of the representative agent or whatever 
but it wouldn't cause a boom bust cycle because again, it's everything. There's no mismatch in the capital structure because it's a real simple, no, you would just carry K T plus one being higher than, you know, K star T plus one or something, you know what I mean? Right, but right. it's not that there would be too many hammers and not enough nails, which is kind of like a, a simplistic way of trying to explain what happens when the capital structure is not internally compatible. Yeah. Yeah. Well, your friend probably went back and read the, um, article by Hobbler. Mm -hmm. So even when he was a supporter of the Austrian theory, I went back and looked at that article. Mm -hmm. And that article is what I call a hydraulic version of the Austrian business cycle theory. Mm -hmm. That is, it's, well, these streams of spending change. Mm -hmm. um, no, no, no entrepreneurs is mentioned. Uh, you know, entrepreneurship is not mentioned. Monetary calculation is really not mentioned in Hobbler's article. Capital consumption is not mentioned. So if you go back and look at it, it's simply, all the interest rate does it's like a little mechanism that, that in increases the flow. toward. If it goes down, it increases the flow towards capital goods mm -hmm. and dams it up somewhat towards consumer goods. Mm -hmm. And then um, later on, at some point, the you know, central bank raises the interest rate and the, uh, and, and the flows reverse. I mean, that's, that's all it is. I mean, even when he was a supporter of, of Austrian business cycle theory, which was for a few years, 31, 32, around there. Okay. Mm-hmm. So that's where your friend picked that up, that it's an overinvestment theory. I mean, I think mm -hmm. he may even call he may even call it that in that article. Mm -hmm. Right. But as we're saying, and I remember, I don't know if it's in human action or somewhere else, but Mises, I think, explicitly says some have characterized this as an overinvestment theory, but it would be better to call it a male investment theory to, you know, to get across the idea that it's it's not that there's too many resources flowing into investment goods. It's right. the fact that they're, they're not the right proportions in line with what the consumers want. And this is where maybe right. this is the right time, Joe, to bring up Mises' famous metaphor of the, the master builder and saying, you know, suppose, suppose yeah. there's, a, there's a builder and he's got all the, you know, he's got a certain amount of bricks and shingles and panes of glass and, and, and carpenters and so forth at his disposal. And he's going to erect a house and he draws up the blueprints accordingly and if it turned out that he doesn't have as many bricks as he thought he did, and so he starts laying the foundation and they're building the first floor and so on, and you know they're using bricks, and at some point, the blueprint right. is going to call for additional bricks to be put in, but they're going to just not physically exist anymore, then you know that's, Misa says, you wouldn't say that he overinvested in housing. It, it's just that, no, he, you know, he didn't use the, yeah, the resources in the right proportions. Yeah. Uh, and he's saying that's kind of a metaphor for what happens with the economy as a whole during the boom period. It's that entrepreneurs are acting as if there's more real resources and savings available than there really are to take all these projects to the finish line. You know, and you, the fact that you called it a metaphor every time that you referred to it just now is very important mm -hmm. because some economists like Hobbler and others say, well, what, what is the problem? Um, if you do indeed complete the factory, if you do indeed complete the uh, electric utility or, or, or sink the mine shaft, well, then it, it's completed. And, uh, but but that, that's only a metaphor. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. You do complete. Uh, many of these projects are completed. There's just not sufficient labor, electricity, and other nonspecific goods at a cost that makes running them profitable. Mm -hmm. and, and, and that's the problem. When, when, when the demand shifts back, when wages go up and households begin to spend splurge because – the, the, the value of their 401ks are going up, the value of their houses are going up. Um, at that point, we, we have the consumer goods prices going up faster than, than capital goods prices and, and resources being drawn back. But many of, 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 of the previous investments then have already been sunk and they're gone. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, well, in fairness to this 
you know, like where did Hobbler get this interpretation from? I think there is something in also in the work of in Hayek in particular where you might get this idea and it has to do with this notion of forced saving. Do you, so I don't, I don't mean to spring that on you, but are you, are you yeah. familiar with how Hayek uses that term in this context? He does use it differently from Mises. Uh-huh. Um, so I think we should start with Mises. Mises says that um, whenever there's an injection of money into the economy, it always comes at a certain point and, and, and it's affects the economy in a non-neutral way because some people spend the people get the new money, spend it differently than the way the pattern of spending was before. And so what may occur over time is that there's a shift in wealth and income um, away from those people who um, are, are low savers towards people that are high savers. And once that's completed, that's permanent. And yes, there is uh, more saving in the economy. Now that's forced saving because it was forced by government intervention. Hayek doesn't quite look at it that way. Hayek's view is, is a little bit different. And that is that as soon as the new money comes in, um, you begin to get, uh, if, if it's injected you know, through the credit markets, mainly to businesses who are seeking to invest, then you already have the four savings to begin mm-hmm. with. Mm-hmm. So Hayek says you have to keep, you have to keep injecting more money to, to, to keep the four savings going. But that's how, now how, how, how do you understand that? I mean, well, I, I think there's some notion in, and again, it gets real complicated, but like yeah. with, like you say, like a wage earner, just in the sense of, oh, wow, prices are going up and, and they might be in a sense forced to restrict their consumption. Right, right. And so that's the sense in which like, hey, mathematically, how do we make this work out? Because if, if more investment goods are being made, you know, there's not more, the PPF hasn't shifted out. And so if more investment goods are being, it must be that there's less consumption going on. And so I, I like I say, if it were a simplistic, like if it's just a too good model, right. then yeah, that would have to be the case. And so I think the way that's supposed to manifest itself is if you're a wage earner and all of a sudden the prices at the grocery store are a lot higher and your nominal wages haven't gone up sufficiently, you're, yes. rest- you're restricting consumption. So that's one way that, you know, how are we, quote, financing all the extra mine shafts being started? It's because the workers can't buy as much at the grocery store. Right. Yeah. And so that's, that, that's one. That's mm-hmm. view. You're, right. So, so Mises' view is that, that Mises says this in human action that you can have, it depends on the historical circumstances, mm-hmm. whether wages go up faster or prices go up faster during a given inflationary boom. So mm-hmm. that, that is not the meaning uh, that, that he attributes to force right. saving. Right. His, his attribution of the meaning is is to the this this process by which income is permanently shifted from one group to to another income and wealth from one group to another uh, who may be higher or lower savers mm-hmm. and if they're if they're higher savers then that's that's for saving in some sense mm-hmm. it's a permanent condition it's it's not an on, it's not part of the ongoing inflationary process okay and again I'm trying to come up with something to, to get the listeners in case they haven't heard of these things before so for example, and again, the, where this is all coming from, I think this confusion with the more neoclassical critics and what Mises and Hayek and Rothbard had in mind is that, and, and Garrison too, because like we said, his his diagrams show this stuff. It's it's that it's, once you get a richer idea of the capital structure, then the possibility of too much investment in higher order goods and more consumption going on at the same time, even though there's not more physical steel available and more farmland that can happen at least temporarily. And so things like, just to give people an idea, 
shipping companies, you know, they have fleets of 18 wheelers and they might neglect standard maintenance. You know I mean? They might not like rotate the tires out. They might run the, you know, keep running the missing right. if they normally are supposed to change the tires every, every month. And instead they postpone that. That's how you could free up some rubber to go into something else, you know? So things like that, like standard maintenance that if you postponed it, in a sense, you would be consuming the capital stock because you're not reinvesting enough to keep the structure up and running, but you could get by temporarily without doing that. And so that's, I mean, that's a silly example. Maybe in practice, a shipping company would know enough to keep rotating the tires and, you know, putting in new tires, but changing the oil. But I'm just, I'm trying to give an example so they could see once you get more realistic about the capital structure and how complicated everything is, you could see how it's physically possible. You could be starting a bunch of long-term investment projects and making more, you know, Ferraris and, and yeah. hamburgers at McDonald's. And yet still in the aggregate, there's a sense in which we're consuming capital. You can think of it this way. Um, so, you know, during wartime, during World War II, you know, they ran three shifts and people were, you know, were shifted away from, um, you know, um, maintaining the factory building itself and mm-hmm. shifted, put on the lines to increase the actual output of consumer goods. Meanwhile, the machinery and the actual factory building deteriorated and wasn't replaced. Mm-hmm. So we, we got, because we had more people on the line, you know, physically producing the goods, we got more consumers' goods, in this case, war goods, but we had less capital. And also Mises stresses that, you know, inventories can be used up and not replaced. Right, right, great, yep. And also just to show the, the baleful effects of inflation, that that's, I think Mises says that's partly what happens during the boom. It's people unwittingly are consuming mm-hmm. capital. So for example, if, you, if you're running a bakery and you've got an expensive oven that you need to replace every five years, so out of your revenue, you know, you have a sinking fund and you're setting aside like, oh, yep. every five years I got to spend whatever, $50,000 on replacing the oven. And so, you know, every year I got to put aside $10,000 free, forget interest for the moment, right, you know, right, right. And, and to have this thing rolling over so that by year five, I've built up 50,000 and I go buy the new oven and just keep doing that. Well, in an inflationary environment, demands through the roof, everybody likes my pastries all of a sudden and I'm putting aside 10,000 and I'm still getting a lot more demand than, you know, I'm going and yeah. taking vacations and buying, you know, my children extra presents and things. Cause I'm putting aside the 10,000, but then when the fifth year rolls around, I go to buy the new oven and it actually now costs 80,000 and I've only got 50,000 that I saved. That's right. And so that, that's like one example of how at the individual level you can make mistakes because you've been misled by the inflation. And so that, that can also happen just even in physical terms in the aggregate. Yeah. In fact, you know, it's a good point because what Mises says is not only is the Austrian theory of business cycle, not an overinvestment theory, but but there's actually, you know, fewer capital goods available because of this cons- overconsumption that goes on. Now, it doesn't happen right away. Mm-hmm. I, I think we should stress that. Austrians view the, um, the inflationary process as a process that unfolds over time. So that initially, um, maybe there is um, are more capital goods available in some sense as, as uh, you know, pe- people um, don't, don't adjust to infl- inflationary expectations. But later on, when everybody, first of all, sees their own incomes rising, their, their, their values of their, their homes and, and their financial assets going through the roof, and they, be, they begin to spend, but, they, but they're also spending because now they're also inspecting, expecting inflation to go on. So there's a, there's, there's a double drive to overconsumption, expecting higher prices in the future. So you're, you're, you're pushing consumption now. But beyond that, you have the means to do that because it's what I, it's what I call a false wealth effect. 
Mm-hmm. Keynesians call it a wealth effect, but it's a, but it's really a false wealth wealth effect. You know, it, it comes because profits and losses are 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 um, falsified. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right, and you and you actually saw that in the U.S. data. I remember, like around two thousand six and seven, I think mm-hmm. that the the official U.S. savings rate had dropped pretty low. Yeah, it's 1%. But it's a down and, six. and that was, quote, rational, you know, in the face of rising house prices, yeah, that the yeah. individual households were saying, well, why should I save more out of my, you know, salary or wage income because I'm getting all these capital gains on my asset? And so if that really were, if that were a legitimate thing and your house really wasn't going up that much and it was going to stay that higher, that it might not have been a mistake. But in right. retrospect, of course, since then the home prices collapsed. People realize, oops, I probably should have been saving more. But that's it's a you know an, an example of what you're talking about, where an asset boom that's fueled by monetary inflation can lead people to save less out of current production, even though you know what they're doing is individually rational if those prices were correct. Right. Correct. Yeah. Okay. Well, why don't we shift then to a, a separate thing? So Krugman didn't talk about it, at least in the recent one, and I don't remember if he huh. did in his earlier slate you know, drive by on, on the Austrian theory, but certainly guys like Tyler Cowen and I think Brian Kaplan as well. One of the yes. big objections they have besides this, you know, alleged false asymmetry that, Hey, how come you guys aren't treating the boom and the bust is, is comparable? Your story doesn't make sense. But beyond that, they say normally Austrians are real big on how entrepreneurs are good at forecasting the future. And yet these idiots, every time the central bank lowers interest rates, they're, boom, I'm going to go invest more because, you know, it seems like the only people who don't know the Austrian theory are the entrepreneurs. So how can that be? So it's, they, officially they're yeah. saying it's a violation of rational expectations. So what, what do you say to that objection? I say that m- money illusion, that is tr- calculating with sums of money is rational. It's what anchors the economy to reality. So when entrepreneurs follow the interest rates. It's not just the interest rate that's dropping and they can say, oh, well, you know, the interest rate um, uh, is historically low and, and, I, and I better be careful and, and, and withhold, not borrow and, and splurge on new projects. What happens is that there's other things that happen. So when the interest rate is lower, certainly others are, are, are borrowing and investing and the money is getting to the workers and, 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 and other factor owners and that pushes prices up. So the whole structure of prices is changing in the economy. And so it's not just the interest rate that you have to worry about forecasting. If you see an array of prices that you usually react to changing, economic calculation is always in terms of money. It's never in real terms. So there's no way for you really to know what the source of those changes in prices are, how much of that is real, how much of that is driven by inflation. So it's really entrepreneurs that are being fooled or misled and it's not just the manipulation of the interest rate, but the introduction of fiduciary media mm-hmm. of unbacked deposits into the economy. Um, they're fooled into thinking that they're, 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 you know, the capital values of their firms are higher. There's a lot of different things that change. Capital values, prices, and so on, not just the interest rate. So Cowan and Kaplan make the mistake of many mainstream economists by focusing on simply on the credit market, that the interest rate is determined on a credit market. And that, well, yeah, if it's too low, well, then maybe you better not borrow right now. Maybe you better wait because it's not normal. But that's not the case. It pervades the whole economy and it, and it revolutionizes prices as, as well as asset values. Right. Yeah. I, so you, you made at least two points there that I think are important too to respond to that. So one is that 
if it were the case that everybody could just look at Fed the Fed policy and then know, oh, the the interest rate really ought to be such and such. The natural interest rate is this. Yeah. Well, then we, you wouldn't need prices in the first place. Right. You know, we could just go ahead and do you know socialist right. calculation if if people could just offset what the Fed was doing to know what the you know price would have been in the alternate universe. But then even beyond that, and I think this is a point that Carilli and Dempster make when they they sort of did a. Right. Um, like a prisoner's dilemma type yeah, response yeah. was to look at incentives and just say, look at it's, and this comes to the fact that the reason the interest rate gets lower is because the fed is injecting new money or the, or in the more traditional exposition, the commercial banks are issuing more fiduciary media. Right. And so if you've got the banks handing out new money at lower rates, yeah, the wise entrepreneurs might say, this is dangerous. We're not going to take them, but other people are lining up and getting that money and their money right. is just as good as the wise entrepreneur's money when they go into factor markets. And so they're going to be able to bid away factors because they're getting these cheap loans, which are you know backed up by new money. And so that's clearly has to distort things. And so it's not enough just to say, how come even most entrepreneurs don't smell a rat or know that this is unsustainable as long as there's at least a few who are willing to take those loans and go on the yep. factor markets, that's going to cause the distortion. And so, you know, it's it's really when you stop and, and think through what is actually happening. And that's why I think it's important, too, for, you know, Rothbardian types to stress how f- funky fractional reserve banking is. That There's a sense in which the commercial yeah. banks are literally creating new money out of nothing and in, in lending that out to people. And the idea that, oh, everything's just going to offset that because of rational expectations. Again, I come back to okay, so if I have a laser printer in my basement and I'm printing off $100 bills, you're saying that's not going to screw anything up? Everyone's just going to know that and offset it? And uh, No, of course that's going to, you know, my consumption right. is going to be higher, number one. <laughs> so, yeah. yeah, and to your point, um, there was also an article, it may, may have been by, by Carilli and Evans or um, maybe Peter Lewin and, and, and Anthony Evans, in any case, where they point out that when, when the Fed increases bank reserves and, and banks, want to loosen the terms on which they, they, they loan them out. They don't just drop the interest rate. They also lower credit standards, right? Mm-hmm. So that marginal entrepreneurs who would not have gotten hold of this money now get a hold of it. So even if the, the super marginal entrepreneurs um, who would have met the older credit standards withdraw from the market because they're, they're worried, you, as you said, that they have these other entrepreneurs that are stepping in and taking the money and, and, and spending it and, and, and distorting the economy. Mm-hmm. They actually I have a real world example of that. When I was in Nashville during the housing bubble years and I was at this, my neighbor had a party and the guy who had built my house and my neighbor's house, you know, happened to be there. He was friends with the guy yeah. and he was pointing at it's like just down the street in the cul-de-sac, there were a bunch of houses that were like half built and then they were abandoned when the, you know, when the bust hit. And he said, yeah, I knew, he said, I, I knew the the guys that were doing it. He was like, it was a young crew. They were all in their twenties. And so this guy who was, you know, I think in his sixties at this point, so he right, had, right. you know, my house was 20 something years old. So he had built it when he was a younger man. And so he was still in that sector, but he knew cause he had lived through an earlier crash in the eighties. And he, yeah. he knew that this was, you know, he, he kept his inventory low and he didn't get caught with his pants down because he, he knew this was going to break at some point right. and he didn't want to get caught. Whereas he said, yeah, these younger guys, they had never lived through something like this. So yeah, they were taking the, the cheap credit and they were going ahead and they had all, you know, they were making money hand over fist in 2005 and part of 2006. But then once it turned, they were dead in the water and they had to just stop even, you know, they couldn't even finish the project. So just, it was a particular example showing how, yeah, the, the, you could say, how come the builders didn't know this was a problem? And the idea was, 
the older ones did know that this was unsustainable, yep. but there were young people in the sector thinking, this is great. I'm making, you know, fantastic money. Why wouldn't I expand this? You know, that's a great point because Mises himself in human action, there's a few sentences there or a paragraph or so where he talks about people learning from experience, but that after a generation, um, all of these lessons have been have faded and have been forgotten. Mm-hmm. And and so that that the new credit expansion then again stimulates um, people to rush in and, and, and take the, the, the low interest credit and so on. So um, Mises said, I mean, entrepreneurs can learn. He said, but when they do learn, of course, that's when we don't have a recession. Mm-hmm. So the recessions that we don't have, we never see. Um, the, the, Austrian, the Austrian theory is about the recessions that we do have. Um, when entrepreneurs have been fooled for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. Hey folks, just a quick note. If you like what you're hearing and you want to hear more, then go to bobmurphyshow.com slash contribute. Thank you in advance. Well, why don't I give you a chance then? Is there, is there anything that strikes you at this point that in terms of like common misconceptions, even perhaps among fans of the, of the Austrian theory of the business cycle? I, I, think, I think we've pretty much covered them. Uh, okay. Uh, well, okay, well, here, let me throw one out. Um, yeah, so oh, yeah, yeah. another one that I hear a lot, and in, in fairness, I, I realize that you know it's standard when I would go around in after 2008 and I would try to explain to just regular people, you know, yeah, who, who right. weren't ideological one way or the other, like just what I thought had happened. And I, I wouldn't call it Austrian business cycle theory, but I was sort of, and it was, I would start off by saying, Oh, the, you know, after the dot com crash, you know, Alan Greenspan running the fed pushes interest rate. And so the story would always be that the fed was the person or the thing that initiated this. But then that leads you, you open to the obvious critique of, well, then how come there were business cycles before 1913, you know, in the United States, if there was no, you know, before there was the Fed, what's the problem? And so do you want to speak to, because what's interesting is, you know, Mises' theory is actually, when you go read his stuff, it's about the commercial banks and how they're the ones expanding credit. And I think this also ties in with why Rothbardians have a problem with fiduciary media per se, and not just the central bank, you know, subsidizing it or something. So do you do you want to speak to that that why the the Austrian theory is not merely one about the central bank screws things up? Yeah, so the Austrian theory isn't isn't about first of all isn't about just about lowering the interest rate. Mm-hmm. Um, Hobbler makes that mistake in his book, and Mises in a footnote responds to him and and, and says that um, it's not just lowering interest rate. Banks can lower interest rates, and all they're doing is making gifts of the uh, interest to 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 the borrowers. In fact, what it is, it's a theory of fiduciary media. It's a theory of what happens when there are unbacked deposits or, 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 or deposits, legitimate deposits, are loaned, part of them are loaned out. Um, and so without an increase in, in fiduciary media, which we know is really the, 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 the commercial banks, I mean, that's a source of fiduciary media. Um, so you don't need a central bank. Mm-hmm. Um, commercial banks can, can increase fiduciary media with, without without direction or from, from, from the, the central bank. And, and that was done before 1913 and, 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 you know, back, uh, you know, as, as long as, you know, to the early, maybe the late 18th late 18th century. Um, um, when there was a, an inflation that started because in great Britain, because of the, uh, war, um, with, with France, um, and, uh, there was a business cycle and they went off and they went off the gold standard in 1801. So yeah, it's not just a central bank manipulating interest rates. I think that's that's the wrong way to encapsulate it. 
it's really a question of the creation of fiduciary media. Now, the, the central bank has organized that in modern times and made it much easier to do. Mm-hmm. But, but the commercial banks are, are set up to do that. I mean, that's, that's what they do. Right. And, and they, they were there before, before central banks were. Right, right. yeah. That, that's when you like, imagine a regime of free banking, mm-hmm. even if fractional reserve banking is legal, that if it really is just contract enforcement, you know, like a night watchman state just enforcing yes, contracts I, or whatever, and it's truly free banking in the way that at least theoretically Selgin and White want it to be, then there would be strict limits on the issuance. If any one bank expanded too rapidly, it would lose all of its, right. you know, base money to the other banks. And so it's the existence of the central bank waiting in the wings as a lender of last resort, like that's its actual ostensible function, right, is right. going to reduce those barriers. It's going to allow the the commercial banks to expand more, to inflate more than they could without the central bank waiting there to bail them out when they hit a liquidity crisis. So, so right, that I'm, I'm just, I'm agreeing with you, of course, that it's in the Mises exposition, it's the commercial banks expanding credit through the issuance of fiduciary media that causes the business cycle and the yeah. central bank just facilitates that, but it's not that it's yeah. the cause of that. Yeah, actually, you're, 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 you know, I mean, you are one of the first people that have really emphasized the hat. I mean, I think that's really important. I mean, we, we tend to forget because we live in a world of central banks, mm-hmm. right? And that's all we hear about. But, but to shift the, the, the spotlight, uh, you know, onto the, this, uh, the commercial banks, I think, and to keep it there, mm-hmm. and on, on their creation of fiduciary media, I think that's very, very important. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, we, we, can't, we can't forget that lesson. Now, that does not mean that you or, may, or I necessarily report, uh, support in, in, in a completely free society um, restrictions on, 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 on banking. I mean, that, that, that's another question, mm-hmm. uh, you know, on, on, uh, whether or not we have fractional, whether or not fractional reserves is fraud. I think that's a question for, you know, if we live in a libertarian society for libertarian courts to decide. Mm-hmm. So, um, I, you know, I don't really take a position on that and I don't think you do either, but I mean, you may. But. Right. Like it's, I mean, we, yeah, like you say, we can certainly pontificate it, but I'm not a legal theorist or philosopher yeah. and, but what, yeah. and, and certainly in the context of Mises, what I'm quite confident of in this, you know, I'll credit you, Joe, that was your, your writings that really crystallize this for me is that Mises is, is quite straightforward and there's no ambiguity in his work. And it's consistent from day one up through, you know, later right. yeah. that it's fiduciary media that causes, you know, the, the circulation credit theory of the trade cycle. I mean, that's even yeah. the way he he titled what it was. It's a circulation. Yeah. You go look up at the definition of his terms. It's it's not too much circulation credit theory of the trade cycle or something. You know what no, I mean? No, or exactly. So, and I'm just saying that because I remember back when I was when I was a you know Selgin Whiteian yeah. that I thought Mises was kind of flip flopping around because I could read you know Rothbard and some of the passages he would cite from Mises, and I said, oh yeah, it does look like Mises is against it. Yeah. And then other places, that, but but again, I it was I was missing the the point that he was just saying was fiduciary media causes the boom bust cycle, and that's consistent with him also recommending free banking is the best way to contain that. You know, just just being realistic yeah. and saying you know sort of like Harry yeah. Brown's line. I don't know if you ever heard this, Joe, but I was at Hillsdale College as a student, and Harry right. Brown was running for president and came, and so some of the Christian conservative types were asking him about abortion, and so Harry Brown just kind of sidestepped and he said, you know what? If the government tries to outlaw abortions, pretty soon men are going to be getting abortions. And so, you know, that, he was kind of being funny and glib to, yeah, but yeah, his yeah. point was just, just because you don't like something and, and maybe it should be prohibited, 
the, the real world government and practice using guns and cages to stop people from right. doing it might not actually be the best thing. So, right. and I think that's what Mises was getting at in some of those passages where it looks like, you know, he's a fan of Selgin and White and it's, it's no, that's actually not what he's saying, but. Yeah, not, yeah, right, right. Okay, well, why don't we, let me just give you a chance to elaborate on that and then, you know, I think it's a good spot to wrap up on because people do ask me that a lot and they say, okay, Bob, yeah, fine. Right now you don't want the government you know, you don't like the Federal Reserve regulating banks. You don't like the SEC messing with stuff. But in your ideal libertarian world, do you think the court system should intervene and, and prevent fra- fractional reserve banks? So number one, Joe, do, do you know what Rothbard's position on that was? And then two, you know, do, do you have a stance one way or the other? Well, I think Rothbard, I mean, you know, he knew a lot of legal philosophy mm-hmm. and, and his stance is pretty straightforward. He, he, he looked on... Um, free banking in the Misesian sense as a, as a great um, second best solution mm-hmm. to the problem. But, but in a libertarian society, uh, and even today, if we could, we could get it through, he, he was against fractional reserve banking. He thought it was um, a violation of natural law in some sense, which should be codified in, in, po- in positive law. And, and, um, so yeah, Rothbard was, was against um, I moved, you know, after I did my research with Mises and wrote the article, um, I, I, I initially tended towards Rothbard's view, um, though I never stated it in print. Mm-hmm. But but now I'm I'm pretty I'm I take a, an agnostic stand on that. Um, I'll I'll wait until we we have a libertarian society. Um, I, okay. I'd be really happy with just strict enforcement of uh, of you know abolition of the central bank and then and strict enforcement of contracts. So mm-hmm. from the legal standpoint, I'm I'm not against. Uh, fractional reserve banking. Um, mm-hmm. but, but that doesn't mean that, that we shouldn't shout out to the world. I mean, all, all of, uh, of its effects. Right, Whereas I right. think Selgin and White, they start with the, um, that's gotta be ethical. Anything that's peaceful has to be ethical. And then, mm-hmm. and then, then they, well, then there must be good effects. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, that's, and, and there's not much evidence for that. I mean, uh, you know, they, 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 they proffer the evidence of, uh, of, of, of Scotland, but, but you know, I, I think that's been Larry Seacrest and Murray Rothbard mm-hmm. has have shown, among others, that, that that that's problematic. Right, and then to toot my own horn, Selgin also then holds up Canada in the certain period of when they had free banking. He said this also closely approximates my right. ideal. And I went and dug up the the book that he cited as the authority on the, and the chapters were like this period of when this thing started and the next period depression. And it was like, oh, no. so there was a classic boom bust cycle, right? When he said, this is, you know, this is it. And I was like, what, what more like Murray Rothbard could not have hoped for a better piece of evidence. Wow. And yet Selvin's like running victory laps. Yeah, it was, yeah, it was in the, what you, you in the, the QJE article I did on the more than quibbles or something. Oh yes. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah. All right. okay. Well, all right. Well, that's, that's good. So why, why don't we wrap it up there? Um, so, so thank you folks. Uh, this is bobmurphyshow.com slash 215. We'll go for links to all the stuff that Joe and I have been discussing. My guest has been Joe Salerno. Joe, thanks so much for your time. Thank you, Bob. It was great. You've just experienced another episode of the Bob Murphy Show, the podcast promoting free markets, free minds, and grateful souls. For more information and to subscribe to this podcast, visit bobmurphyshow.com.